0: This is Joel Spolsky, the host of the Stack Overflow podcast. Our podcast depends on listeners like you, who aren't you because you're already listening, and we need more listeners like you. We don't have any kind of fancy marketing budget, so please, if you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you.
1: Don't pretend you can't rap. I have literally oh, heard you. Have you literally rap.
2: heard me rap. <laughs> oh wait, did I miss this?
1: The way I remember it is Christina and Dave Robinson got into a fight over who uh. would do the rap part. For the M&M Dido thing.
3: Yeah. And then
1: they both rapped, and they're both good at it. And it was bonkers.
3: And it was my first time meeting everyone. So obviously <laughs> my solution was, let me just wrap some MM in front of the entire company.
1: This is the Stack Overflow podcast, episode 117, recorded Thursday, September 28th, 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City where more than 8 million people live in peace and enjoy the benefits of democracy. And home to four unique boroughs, each with their own rich cultural tapestry and charm. And also, Staten Island. Today's <laughs> podcast is brought to you by Oracle. Stack Overflow appreciates Oracle's support for this podcast and for our community. Learn more about all the ways Oracle supports open source, Java, and developers like you at oracle.com developers. And the new Amazon Echo Spot. The spot brings seven far-field microphones, instant video, and everything else you love about Alexa to a tiny clock radio form factor that'll look right at home on your nightstand. Finally, you can bring always-on audio monitoring and remote-controlled network cameras right into tiny devices likely to be pointed directly at your bed. (laughs) Amazon, we're not even trying to hide what we're doing anymore. (laughs) On today's podcast, we have our usual crew, CTO David Fullerton. How you doing? News editor Ilana Yatsaki. Hello, everyone. Producer Jess Pardue. Hiya. And joining our regular gang in the studio today, we have special guest, GitLab co founder and CEO, Sid Sabrandi. Hi. And our very own UX researcher, Christina Lustig. Hey. Joel Spolsky is on vacation in Nambia, where we believe he's currently backpacking, (laughs) most likely with a lion named Aslan, but he'll be (laughs) headed home by a trans-dimensional wardrobe sometime later this week. Which makes me your host, Jay Hanlon, VP and general manager of Stack Overflow, and former registrar of Hogwarts' lesser-known sister school, the Hogwarts Academy for Advanced Nursing Sciences. It's good to be back, everyone. Hi. Welcome back, Jay. Why, thank you. You missed a great show last week without you. Oh, I wouldn't say I missed it. No, <laughs> I heard it. I listened to it. It was wonderful. It was actually it was quite funny. And we should have musical guests all the time. Like the worst part of Saturday Night Live every week was like that. What if we just ask all of our guests to sing from now oh, on? Oh, excellent. So, do you have a triangle? Or We'll come back to that. Don't, don't feel pressured. We'll give you a now. harmonica. Yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> Where were you, Jay?
2: Yeah, why don't you tell us why you weren't here?
1: So, I was in the desert kingdom of Saudi Arabia, like you do, as you know, like no one is, because you can't go there mostly. There's no tourism. But my wife was working there. They asked her to come, and a clinic wanted her to do some procedures there and stuff. So, I went with her, and it was a very different and interesting place. It's strange. It's very, there's no tourists. So, there's a real sense of being an outsider. I think the most awesome parts. The people were incredibly welcoming. I had a little bit of like going into a country with very few Americans thinking, well, they dislike Americans or think we dislike folks from that part of the world or I don't know. It was a little, that was one concern. Incredibly welcoming, nice people. I think there's a sort of Arabic sort of desert culture of welcoming strangers that was really cool and they want to feed you and like, and that part was really awesome, although it's super culturally different in ways. The most interesting part for me was it was the first time in my life I've had a prolonged sense of being a foreign outsider who didn't belong. And I mean, that's such an incredible statement of privilege that I don't, I don't run into that. I'm, I'm very lucky, right? I'm kind of sit on the privileged side of all these things. But that was a really discomforting and interesting experience being in a place where everyone dresses the same but you. And most people only speak Arabic and you can't even translate it in a phone because the alphabet's different. And, like, communication's hard, and, like, you just worry about doing stuff wrong. You can't take pictures in most places there. You're not supposed to say bless you. There's, like, all these little things. And so it was challenging, but I feel like it was a healthy perspective for someone like me to get. So I really like that, and I really like the people. And Riyadh's a hard city to get around is my other main part of the review. In any case, it is wonderful to be back. David, do you have a one-minute tech review for us today?
5: I do. I do. This is actually, this is a it's a game that I've been playing called Screeps. Screeps.com. S-C-R-E-E-P-S dot com. It is a programming game that I have become mildly addicted to in the last month or so where you write JavaScript. And you run in this continuous, persistent game world where your code is always running 24-7, controlling these little guys called creeps who walk around and collect energy to make more creeps, and then they fight each other, and you take over other rooms. And because it's a programming game, it's a very simple game if you were just sitting there, you know, controlling them and telling them what to do. But because it's a programming game, you can spend basically an infinite amount of time tweaking it and optimizing it and making it smarter and trying not to get them you know to walk into a corner and get stuck and things like that so very fun highly recommend it it does come with a monthly fee if you're going to play on the persistent world but it's also open source so you can download it and run the server yourself if you want to or i think there are some other open servers out there
1: screeps.com Screeps. Screeps is the second most unpleasant brand name I've ever heard.
2: Screeps, it's kind of creepy. Scripted creeps, Sorry.
1: but yeah, Screeps. it's not
5: the name. You know, maybe not so much.
1: But the word saddens me. I think Utz is the only worse brand I've ever heard. We're like, I just—that's <laughs> not what you call food. No one would eat that.
5: Ing. I thought ing was always like—it just seems like a suffix. I don't get it. Ing. But,
1: but that's not a brand. Of... That's part of a gerund. What are you doing that's, over there? It's just part of a word. Well, check out Screeps because David gives it two big programmer-y thumbs up.
5: Yeah, and please don't find out
1: who I am and kill me. What? Oh, in the game, <laughs> in the, in the yes. game, just in general, or at all, in <laughs> or any in context. General. Yes, that that, that would too. be no good. And I believe, as any responsible fact-based podcast like we totally are. It's my understanding we have an important correction to one of our discussion points from last week. Yes. So we talked last
5: week about the Tetris that was implemented in Conway's Game of Life, and we talked about how awesome and big it is. But I misspoke when I said that in running the game, they had to write it out file by file. That was not accurate. They actually can run it all at once. It only takes 20 minutes per instruction right now. But they are working on an improved version, which will take it from 20 minutes per instruction to only a minute and a half per instruction. So a very,
1: very slow game of Tetris. And so special thanks to user Elendia Starman. Apologies if I mispronounced any of that for sharing the correction and also for all of the hard work on what I think is safe to say is the single most epic answer and effort we are aware of in response to a question anywhere on the Stack Exchange network. Thanks for straightening us out there. Which brings us, of course, to the most democratic portion of our podcast, which is kind of a low bar. As <laughs> you know, dear listeners, we are preparing a constitution for Stack Overflow. And each week we bring you a proposal, and you, our listeners, will decide on whether that proposal becomes a part of our new constitution. Last week's proposal came from JB, user JB, which is at JB4th4. That's JBFORTH number four. JB's question was, is it okay to take off your shoes at the office? Pro was, of course, take them off, the Matt Sherman position. Con was, that is disgusting, the Michael Pryor position. And JB, I I have to warn you that regardless of how the vote ultimately turns out, due to ex post facto rules at your company, any new amendment decriminalizing your gross feet may not stop the current HR disciplinary procedures that are, I assume, occurring at this moment. But here, with the results of last week's proposal, is news editor Ilana Yitzaki.
4: Hello. So surprisingly, we got a sixty-seven percent pro.
1: Sixty-seven percent gross oh, no. toe people. Take
4: your shoes off. You Bro. are hobbits. I'm taking them off right now. What?
1: Wow. And she did take her shoes off, guys. We just lost our A-plus rating from the health board, so (laughs) thanks
4: for that. So Sean Ennis, E-N-N-I-S-0, he said, Pro, but remember, barefooters, like atheists, ain't got no soul. (laughs) (laughs) But we do have an honorary mention to Steve Steve at Strange Loop at S-Trout. Steve Trout. Con, no bare feet. Violators will be shod on site.
1: Double points to Steve oh, so because good. he's got a bad pun and he works here. Yeah,
4: so no stickers for you, Steve, but Sean, you get you get stickers.
1: Because it'd be a conflict of interest, right, if Steve won the prize. It, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be fair. It would not be fair. So this week, we are excited to bring you a new proposal. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. I'm waiting. You're really good at that. That was awesome. See, a lot of people <laughs> don't wait when you say wait a second. They just try to ask questions. Or Okay, that was great. I forgot why we were waiting. I know. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> if i'm not mistaken this here to four we have to say where it's like here to four because mm-hmm. it's all very greek parliamentary stuff here to four this shall be known i believe we have to find out if he wants it to be the jb amendment or the jb fourth amendment or oh this yeah is, it passed, this is pro so it's official
2: we haven't had a pro this in a is long passed time. into
1: law <laughs> it's <true>. so please <laughs> user jb at jb fourth four you'll need to contact us and let us know what your preferred name for the amendment will be, we can call it the JB Amendment, the JB 4th 4 Amendment. We will not call it Bodie McBoatface, no matter what you say. It has to be in some way related to your name or username. Oh. But you have earned the right to go down in the annals of our fake law thing. And so let us know fake what you want us to too. be called.
2: <laughs> our fannels.
1: Our the fannels. See
2: that? Our I, fake annals. That, that's another
1: word I don't like the sound of. Okay.
2: Can I add something very quickly before we go on?
1: I would be delighted if you added something. You could add it medium quickly.
2: Okay. So... I know that this week's passed, and yay, people can take off their shoes at the office. Oh but no, for this is people, gross. It's so gross, but just people here at Stack Overflow, if I see you take your shoes off, I'm going to make fun of your gross hobbit feet.
5: Uh, the amendment I mean, passed.
2: I My hate feet, feet are beautiful. I, I guess feet.
5: the amendment didn't say we can't make fun of you for taking a shoe job. It just says you're
1: allowed to.
2: You can't take that away from me. I will make fun of your gross hobbit feet.
1: This, like most things, it goes back to like the free speech thing. Like, Yes, fine, the amendment will guarantee your right <laughs> to behave in a certain way, but society has a right to revile and judge you if you exercise said rights in a disgusting, toe-exposing way. That's just how it's going to yeah, be.
2: I don't like toes.
1: I'm not wearing shoes right now.
2: You're in your own out. home. I don't mind.
1: Yeah, I can't even see below your neck, and that's grossing me out, so
2: <laughs> yuck.
1: That's all I have to say is yuck. <laughs> okay, this week we have a new proposal submitted from, uh, I believe it's Kevin Arve. That's Twitter handle at A-R-V-K-E-V-I, like Arv Kevi. Kevi? I like that. In line at the supermarket, which customer is responsible for placing the divider bar between items? See, this is one of the great questions of our time. So you're putting items on a conveyor belt thing, right? Yep, yep. And these days because supermarkets are cheap and mean and terrible, you're Wait, trying what? to scan them yourself probably and wishing you were dead the whole time because the stupid machine never works and it doesn't understand fruit. All Sorry. Right. I'm going off on my are own. The ones that try to
5: weigh it at the end and then they get mad at you if you it, take it off it, the weigh <laughs> thing and then it yells <laughs> oh, at you to the put the it worst. back.
1: Oh. It is so brutal. And then it's like putting your code number so you get your discounts next week and you go to put it in. But no, that goes in the weird credit card thing, not in the main. I, I don't like those things.
2: I love them because it means I don't have to talk to another human. Are you that kidding? is also extremely them. valuable
1: to
5: me. And I uh, love uh, them. I yeah. dislike
4: them for yeah. that reason because I want someone to talk to. Mm-mm.
2: The
5: problem is that you, you think, you oh, think gee, you're think you going thanks. to get out of talking to a human being, but then inevitably the machine <laughs> malfunctions. And then yes. you're even in an even worse position of having to go hunt down another
1: human being who can fix the dumb machine for you. The I don't use
2: the self checkout.
1: No, I would say I have to use this every two weeks probably. It's stop and shop, shop right. I can't tell the difference.
2: I don't believe I have
1: ever escaped the self-checkout without a human (laughs) with a key having to come over and do a key thing and press buttons. It's possible we've lost the thread. Okay,
5: but anyway, the Constitution question has to do with the divider. The divider. Between
1: customers. So I
5: put my stuff on. Yeah, yeah. And then Jay's right behind me, and I really don't want my stuff to get mixed up with his stuff. Is it it's my responsibility, responsibility or Jay's responsibility to put the divider
1: on?
2: No, it's Jay's responsibility. I think it's, I think I, like, it's the no second question. person.
1: Yeah. yeah. Cause, so here's how you play it out because there's multiple cases, right? So what could happen is you could put all your stuff and then you're done and you leave and I never show up. And like, would you have put one there? Then it'd be a waste of time. Like you when you finish. extra
3: thing there. Is yes.
1: Like... That's why we'll never cure cancer. It's stuff like that. And <laughs> so you've, you would finish and just Wait, leave. What? It doesn't make sense for you to put the divider before I arrive. I think it's got to be the second person. We have an unusual consent. Sid, you want to disagree? Take the contrarian
0: side? I think it should be the first person. Ah, (laughs) Are you just saying that to be contrarian? Do you believe that? No, it's the indication to the second person that they can start loading. Otherwise, they start loading before you're done. And then you have to look really angrily okay. at them, so they move their stuff back on the dock.
3: Right, right. But they can tell if you're done loading or not. I mean, if your cart is empty, you're done loading, right? Like, well, but, it's, Christina, it's to be amazing. fair, you have to have
1: eyes. If you have eyes, that's obvious. <laughs>
2: that's fair. But, hmm. um,
1: mm.
2: I mean, that that's a good point, but I don't know. I've never seen somebody do it when I'm just in a regular grocery store that does not have self-checkout. People never put it behind So There's there's
5: definitely a moment where if the person behind you doesn't, then you're in the really awkward position of having to sort of passive-aggressively add it after the fact <laughs> to separate like, your stuff. That
2: stuff is yours, this stuff is mine, and don't you like, forget.
5: I really don't. I'm not buying the Cheetos. Those are theirs. Please don't put those on my bill.
3: Maybe it's a bit aggressive to put them on there in the first place, right? You're like, um, okay this is the end of my stuff. Okay, now you can put your stuff on the conveyor. It's a bit aggressive. Or maybe it's just a nice thing. (laughs) (sighs) Wait, weren't you on the other side originally?
4: (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah. I I totally um, (laughs) am. She's the second person. No, no, no. The second person should do it, I feel like. Because if there's nobody there, then what's the point of me doing it? But you know what? I always found that I always created that line of demarcation anyway as the second person. So obviously I'm going to put the...
5: This is all very confusing. I think we need to put it to a vote. We
0: should put it to a vote. I'm going to propose an extra option. If you're really a good programmer and you have familiarity with protocols, you should declare at the start of you putting stuff on it how much space you're going to need. (laughs) (laughs) I like the
1: way you think, Sid, but I'm sorry. We're going to have to restrict it to a straight up and down vote with no (laughs) amendments and no debate on the floor. You could propose a future constitutional amendment to the previous amendment. My other conclusion based on Alana's instant switch is that Sid can convince people to do anything. He's like, we should start a personal submarine company. You should have the opposite opinion. You're very good at this. So, dear listeners, please submit your own answer on Twitter using the hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast with pro or con and your explanation, which I swear to God better not be 280 characters or I will cut you. The best (laughs) explanation, whether on the winning side or the losing side, will be read on next week's podcast and win a Stack Overflow sticker courtesy of the Stack Overflow Podcast. And as you saw today, is true, not just a thing. We promise and then renege on like most of the stuff we do. If you submit your ideas for future constitutional amendments using the same hashtag, Stack Overflow Podcast, an amendment might, if passed, be named after you. Which brings us, I think, to something slightly less nonsensical. In fact, very much so. It is the third, if I'm counting correctly, which I'm not awesome at, third segment in our ongoing series talking about the Stack Overflow experience and how new people find the site and their time here. And so we are very excited to have Christina Lustig here, as promised. Christina was our first and our currently only UX researcher, but has changed our lives here. So thank you for joining us on the podcast, Christina.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Let's start with you. So give us a tiny bit about your background. How did you get involved in user research?
3: Yeah, so after undergrad I spent a lot of time looking for jobs, like I applied to maybe like two hundred jobs. And when you have a degree in mostly submarine
1: companies, I assume mostly submarine
3: companies, but for some reason my degree in linguistics didn't really help me get those jobs at submarine companies. So I eventually got a job working tech support and the company that I worked for had some I guess I have to be diplomatic, usability issues. And (laughs) (laughs) the issues were bad enough that I started researching usability and user experience myself, knowing nothing about it, and then it seemed pretty interesting. So I started Googling more, and I thought maybe I should go to school for this. And I kind of on a whim applied to grad school, and I told myself that if I got in, I would go, and if I didn't, then I would keep doing tech support. (laughs) And I got into grad school, and so now I've been doing user research for about six years now.
2: And
1: do you have a degree in user research specifically?
3: I have a degree in human computer interaction,
1: which that's is awesome. Sounds
3: fancy, right? <laughs> it's not that fancy, but it's it's pretty cool and it's super relevant to what I'm doing right now.
1: I feel like that's a phrase that Apple has since trademarked and no one else may use in any context anywhere. But that's awesome, and I love that. Like you were just like, is it Mahatma Gandhi? Like you were just like, I'm gonna be the change I want to see in the world. I don't like our UX, and so I'm gonna go study UX and become a UX <laughs> expert so I can fix it all. That's great. Yeah, that's
3: pretty much what happened. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so tell us a little bit. We briefly touched last week on kind of the concept of the mentorship experiment, but why don't you share? And you, you've really been kind of leading the charge on this. Tell us a little bit about sort of what got us started out down this path. What were we hoping for, and what did we actually do?
3: Yeah, so we originally started thinking about this project several months ago. I was contacted by a couple of academic researchers who were interested in exploring the new user experience, specifically as it relates to diversity on Stack Overflow. So that's obviously, or maybe not obviously, but it is something that I'm very interested in. So we started going over different Product ideas that they had, different approaches that they were interested in exploring, and the mentorship one just kept sticking out to us as something that we could potentially do at a small scale and potentially do some testing with to see how effective it might be. So we actually started off with a very, very small scale version of it, literally four people that we recruited from our friend groups to go into these weird little Slack channels with each other and just talk about coding. (laughs) As you can imagine, that's much different from getting help from strangers on Stack Overflow, which I'll talk about in a second. That experiment didn't work at all for, (laughs) (laughs) as you might guess, for several reasons. There was no context for the conversations. It was super asynchronous. So someone would ask a question, And then, like, eight hours later, the other person would respond and say, like, hey, do you still need help with this? And they would say, well, no, I was working. I I figured it out six hours ago, but thanks. So for all those reasons, we went to Joe, who I think was here last week, yeah?
1: Joe Friend. yep, was on the podcast last week.
3: Yeah, I went to Joe and was like, Joe, I think this is really important. I think we should give it a go. I think we should work on it. I think he was probably a bit skeptical at first. I think there was actually a large amount of skepticism in general because it just seemed like such a, like, kind of strange idea.
1: We may have a recording of Joe's response here. Hang on.
3: Boo! You suck!
1: Okay, yes, yes. So <laughs> I knew he yeah. had it somewhere. Sorry, we haven't used the soundboard in a while, and it just it felt like time.
3: Yeah, no, that was good. That's pretty accurate. So
1: Joe was coming around in your story before I interrupted you to play nonsensical sounds.
3: Right, so I came to him with a idea and after a couple of months of him kind of ramping up with the team and doing a lot of convincing and elbowing he's finally like okay fine we can do this it shouldn't shouldn't take too much dev time famous last words right <laughs> <laughs> and we started implementing it we reached out to the stack overflow community and found a group of people willing to be mentors and we just kind of packed together this mentorship feature using stack overflow chat And we just, we, we went for it. (laughs) There were definitely a lot of issues along the way, but it eventually, I think it was actually a success.
1: So just high level. So basically, so we had this study, right? That was kind of interesting. And there came some proposals that we've actually, I believe we talked about that study before where they kind of broke out some of the negative experiences and which ones skewed worse for people in certain groups than others. And we'll link to, there's a public version of this, isn't there? Yes. Yes. So we'll link to that in the show notes. People can take a look because I think it's some interesting work. But the idea, Christina, was basically that new users, some random selection of new users, people posting a question for, we think, the first time, would be offered an opportunity to kind of opt into getting someone to help them craft a question to be more successful.
3: Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the research that's been done on the new user experience on Stack Overflow, and even just anecdotally, I know that y'all read some mean tweets the other week that probably touched were
1: so mean. So yeah, mean. probably
3: touched on this a lot, right? Which is when you post your first question on Stack Overflow. Like sometimes you, th- you think you have a good question and then you hit the post button and you're like, yes, I did it. I can't wait to discover the answer to my question. And then you check it two minutes later and it's maybe been like downvoted or someone has written a comment that doesn't make sense or is extremely critical. And you're just like, you're left wondering like, what did I do wrong? And like, it's it's not a super positive experience.
1: So tell us how we set it up to get this kind of small sample help.
3: So, what we eventually ended up with, skipping all of the kind of interim iterations, was that when a new user finished crafting their question, they would hit the post a question button, and then we would pop up this overlay that said something like, Don't quote me. Hey, you finished writing your question. Do you want to get some help with fixing up your question from some experienced Stack Overflow users? And then there are two options like, No, just post my question, or go to mentorship chat. And so, when a new user pops over into mentorship chat. There's this private mentors-only room that gets this ping that says, hey, this user entered mentorship chat. This is their question. Who wants to help them? And then someone in the private mentorship chat says, oh, me, I will. And then they pop over into the mentorship chat and they help the user fix up their question. And once the question's all fixed up, hopefully (laughs) the new user copies their draft back to... Stack overflow, and then hopefully gets their question answered.
1: So what happened? What did we learn? Did a lot of people opt in? Did it help? What were the takeaways?
3: Yeah. So I guess I'll talk first kind of qualitatively about how it went. I think it was a great experience for everyone involved for a lot of reasons. One is that we learned a ton about the kinds of things that people are struggling with when it comes to creating their first few questions on Stack Overflow. We also learned what difficulties mentors have in helping new users, like what specific topics are more challenging to cover. And then the mentors themselves, and I'm obviously not speaking for all of them, but in a lot of the conversations I had, they found the experience really valuable. Like, Not only did it give them more insight into what the experience might be like for a new user. Because for some of them, that was that was years ago. They they don't quite remember. It also helped the mentees like create better questions. And being kind of one of the people running the project, I was able to see all the conversations happening. And a lot of them were extremely positive. Like, hey, thanks so much for the help. And kind of like maybe chatting about where they're from or what they're doing. A lot of the conversations that happened were just like really great to see.
1: There's a bunch of really cool things happening in there, I think. So one is, like you said, I think it's hard in some ways for I think experienced people, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, like basically the simple version is the old don't remember what it's like to be young. It's just hard to remember what you struggled with. I also think there's something cool though too, which is when you're a power user and you're trying to answer questions and there's a lot of patterns of people who don't give enough info all the time and all this stuff, it's easy to kind of lump it into like, there's all these people not trying hard enough to get help where I want to help them and it's so annoying. And like, just that context of like, I'm interacting with an individual person sort of, and like, and even from the other person's perspective, I love that setup of the relationship starts on here's someone here to help you, where the same feedback that came as just a flat comment on the site might have felt critical. It's like someone here, you know, is doing it to help you succeed as opposed to maybe to chase you away.
3: Yeah, the framing is so important there. And I think that that was definitely like really felt by the people, especially the people who had asked a couple of questions before. Like we saw people come into the chat and say things like, oh, maybe next time I won't get downvoted into oblivion or like maybe next time people will be nice to me. It's really concerning just from a user perspective. So I'm glad that like this is a step towards rectifying that.
1: Yeah, and I think part of it's solving some of the ways the interactions happen or learning more about them, but there's also just the directness of it It reminded me when I first started here, I was talking to David and sort of trying to get a download on the company and the site and just all this background. And one of the things he said that really stuck with me, and there really weren't many. I mean, most it was a lot of like (laughs) jibber-jabber and useless comments. Of course. But I remember him essentially saying like, at the heart of what we do here is not building websites, it's building communities. And that really stuck in my head. Again, I was already an active user of the sites and I I liked them and I, I had a real feel for what it's like to It stuck with me. And one of the things I think over the years as we've scaled, the sense of community and the ability to participate in what feels like a community for new people has gotten more challenging. And it's still there. There's all this helping and great interactions. But to get bigger, it's just harder. And there's something I really like about just seeing how these interactions shift and the tone shifts when it feels like sort of a real community interaction. So I'm curious, and I actually don't know the answer to this, but my normal cheating leading question. Do we know how many people who were given the option to get help opted in? I would assume a relatively small percent, but I don't really know.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a small percent. To start off, we gated it to a small percent of overall eligible yep. users to begin with, or else the inflow of users into the chat room would have just been like untenable. Actually, in the beginning parts of the experiment, we thought we had the rate limiting set and we all went to bed. <laughs> and then we woke up the next morning and realized that one of our mentors had been mentoring like four users at once for like hours overnight and he just he just didn't want to leave because new people kept coming in and he was like oh well i need to help them all and we showed up in the morning and we're like oh my god what are you doing go to sleep oh my god
1: i can't decide if that's more like those like geniuses who play chess in washington square park or more like lucy and ethel on the candy conveyor belt where it's just piling up (laughs) and they're getting more and more terrified but it's kind of cool either way
3: yeah, sorry, that was probably not even relevant to what you just said. I forgot the thread of conversation. So,
1: of the people, so of the pe- oddly, I remember, which is super okay. unlikely, of the people that were sort of opted in, do we know roughly what percent of the people who were given the chance to participate chose to? Do we have that?
3: I don't have that exact percentage, I'm sorry. Okay. But we talked a lot about qualitatively how it was for the participants, but I yep. want to talk just a little bit about how it improved the questions on the site, because I didn't mention that, but that's another aspect of this. It's not just to help new people feel more comfortable participating on the site and feel more a part of the community, but it's also to just, like, increase the quality of the community and the content in the community overall. And we did see that the people who were mentored, who asked questions we saw that their questions had a 50% increase in like net score for their questions than people who did not enter and get mentored
1: Wait so 50% higher average score on the question
3: Yes for people who wow. received mentorship versus people who were eligible but did not
1: Oh that's really cool so what we're seeing there is essentially that at the end of the day the people who got mentoring wound up with apparently higher quality questions as a result, it would seem. Yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. And so were there any trends or themes around like, this may be too qualitative to easily observe, but I'm curious if we've figured out more about like, what are kind of some of the things that people most need help with? Or like, what are the most common challenges that askers have? Where like, there's a way to do it. And there's people who know it. And if new people knew that they'd be better, where we can think about baking more stuff in that's just more scalable in the system?
3: Yeah. So there were several main themes that were pretty consistent throughout most of the conversations. So some of them were just related to the site itself, like issues with formatting or issues with figuring out why they couldn't upload an image, just kind of technical stuff. A lot of it revolved around creating examples that were useful and valuable for like helping get answers to their questions. Some of it was about question framing, like making sure there was enough information or talking through the research they'd already done. Really just kind of every part of creating a good question needed help at some point or another, like in the mentorship experience.
1: And so my sense is we're still trying to figure out, we don't expect that this approach can scale like across the whole website. We couldn't offer this to all new users, presumably, right?
3: No, no, definitely not. And you bring up an important point, which is that we definitely designed this experiment and this project to see what we could do without worrying about scale initially. Because if we take the time to craft something very personal and very like person to person instead of immediately starting at scale, we can find the things that work best and we can find the highlights that might be present in a small scale, very personal experience that we maybe wouldn't find if we started big. So we definitely don't think that this precise thing could scale to every new user asking a question on Stack Overflow. But there are elements that we think we will use and that will be important.
1: So I think what's super cool, it's almost like a Wizard of Oz test, right, is like forget about how you'd build a thing. It's like start with like fake it with humans. And I think that's the kind of in the past we haven't done enough of, and it lets us learn from both sides without really writing any shouldn't say we write a little code to facilitate it. But what's the experience for the mentors? What's the experience for the mentees? Does it work? And it feels like our conclusions are, yes, there's something in this that we want to build on and figure out how to kind of iterate off of. Because if I'm hearing you correctly, the question quality got better, which means more new users had positive experiences, got help, created good questions, better questions that could help more people. And the mentors seemed to find it fulfilling. And I think it helped them reconnect to like, I don't know, there's a little bit of, I remember being in college and it's sort of when you first get there, you're so, I mean, everyone's different experience. I was really excited. I was super excited. And as the years went on, it's like, yeah, you get a little jaded, and a little too cool for everything. I wasn't really cool enough for anything, but you know what I mean? <laughs> too cool, the metaphor, not a, and over time I was, a, we called it an undergraduate advisor at my school, which is kind of like an RA, except you don't have to tell on people or get them in trouble. And what struck me most about that experience, I loved it. I like the idea of helping people and help them get comfortable and being able to, I don't know, do something for kids who weren't so excited or were were struggling in a new place. But honestly, the part I got most out of, it reinvigorated my energy and excitement for being there. You know what I mean? You kind of, you get this with kids sometimes too. You absorb their excitement. I don't know. I think there's something really cool in the, our experience users already give so much, being able to reconnect and get excited a little bit with a new person in a more personal way.
3: Yeah. And I think another goal of this. And something that I do want to look into kind of maybe another few months down the line is like, we don't just want to help new users create better questions. We want them to feel more comfortable to continue to participate in the community and become members of the community, just like the people who were mentoring them. So we definitely want to kind of check up on the users who had participated in mentorship in a couple of months like to see how they're doing to see where they're at to see if they've become active members of the community or not
1: yeah that's awesome i'm excited to see where we go with this before we move to our next segment christina anything else you want to plug or share with our listeners
3: oh i should have prepped for that um see we don't always (laughs) ask
1: internal guests that question but i feel like you've earned it uh
3: can I get back to you on that? Maybe I don't have anything. <laughs> you can get back <laughs> to no, us on
1: that. No, you cannot. We've this had a window. The window chance. is closed. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're both okay with it. Well, yes, feel free to get back to us. You can send us something to plug, I don't know, in a subsequent week, and I'll read it like a fake ad. Great. <laughs> but thank you so much for uh, sharing that. We'd be excited, I think, to have you back on in the future about, well, any number of the things you work on are, have been really interesting. But in particular, want to revisit this and talk about what you and Joe and and other folks do next with it. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. All right. We are also exceptionally excited this week to have superstar Sid with us today. So Sid, as folks may already know, before Sid was the founder and CEO Of GitLab, of course. Based on my understanding, Sid, you had various businesses. I see you sold programmable infrared receivers. You started a recreational submarine company, which I'd like to return to in a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sid was never good at sports, but enjoys hiking, sailing, skiing, snowboarding, speed skating, dancing, zook, another topic I'd like to touch on, squashing, which I don't know if that's... Is that the... Okay. And running... And it says in particular of conversations on Hacker News, everything about your bio is confusing to me, and I'm excited to learn more. But thank (laughs) you very, very much for being with us. Thanks
0: so much for having me.
1: I want to start, if I can, with Personal Submarine Company, because I feel like you see a lot of people, they're looking for something to disrupt, an area that needs a new business. You know, they had thermostats, no one's cared about them for a while, Or mattresses. It sounds like with personal submarines, you were like, what do James Bond supervillains need that no one's really focused
0: on in a while? And you just
1: landed on the obvious answer.
0: It was brought to me. I was walking around a trade fair for boats. Me and my wife are in, into sailing. Mm-hmm. And we walked onto the show and we saw a small submarine. And I was super excited about it. So I tried to get as much information as I could. But my wife was insistent that we went and check out the sailboats because that's our shared passion. So walked by and we were walking out of the hole a few hours later and I was I I want to return to the submarine so we went back and I talked to the inventor of the submarine and an investor and I kept in touch and I told the investor like if you want to start a company around this and he wasn't sure yet please please hire me for it and at a certain point I got a, a job offer from IBM and I was like. But I really want to do Submarine, so I, I told the guy and said, <laughs> I need the job offer now because otherwise I'm going to work for IBM. And he was traveling in China and he said, okay, we needed to agree on a salary. And I, I said something extremely reasonable. And he said, no, no, let's do half of that. And I was like, oh, no, it's way too little. The, the guy hadn't worked for like 15 years and he didn't take into account inflation. So I, I was getting like a reasonable wage of 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Which meant that I had to move in with my parents. I moved into their attic. So, great career choice. And then my first assignment was to make the computer for the submarine. And that would supply the oxygen. I never made something electronical in my life, especially that a life support system. <laughs> but I proceeded to do so. And it has to be like 20 bucks and wow. be no bigger than two inches by two inches by one inch. So I made it and I told the inventor that we probably should also look at the carbon dioxide uh, situation. And uh, he disagreed. I sent him some numbers. He disagreed again. I appealed to the investor. He said, no, listen to the inventor. So there I went off to Canada. And after 15 minutes, he got a giant headache while we were testing it. And he said well, it's obviously not working. And I reminded him of the carbon dioxide. So that was the start, and we had all kinds of shenanigans, but it was a success there. It's called u Works, based in the Breda, the Netherlands, and they sell the most submarines every year now. So really proud of that. They're doing really well. And I was oh. with the company for five years while it grew to 15 people.
2: I would really like to see that refusal email to IBM. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they were not super amused. There was a hiring freeze, so they had to go to the European head of HR to get the so-called tickets to hire me. And I said, well... I have not indicated to you that I want the job, but they were very certain that I would accept if they'd offer. And probably I would have, might have accepted if it wasn't for the crazy submarine. So uh, they they were just glad I didn't join Microsoft. Otherwise, all was well.
1: I'm just enjoying the moment where like there's someone like, oh, you've never done anything like this before. Why don't you build the thing that supplies oxygen to people trapped in a tube (laughs) under the ocean? Like, I feel like we worry about breaking the build and introducing bugs and all kinds of things that, you know, could leave millions of developers without information they need for like five or six minutes, but almost no one drowns when we mess up. Like, it's super rare, extremely unusual.
0: (laughs) Maybe the things you do in the beginning of your career, maybe I wouldn't do it today, but no one ever got hurt over all those years. So we had some luck, but we also took a sensible approach and, and hired the right people.
2: So how many of these submarines do you personally own?
0: <laughs> I own zero. Ah. I don't have two million spare. I also don't have like the operational costs. Like you're gonna spend at least ten percent of that a year to keep it maintained. And even worse, you need to boat like a hundred fifty foot yacht to launch the submarine from and that's <laughs> that's quite an expense by itself.
1: You know, you're like dealing with like the Scrooge McDuck client demographic when you basically <laughs> are dealing with a smaller vehicle that launches off of a bigger vehicle. Like that really narrows who you're talking about <laughs> pretty pretty instantly. Hmm. So let's go back in time if we can, Sid. I, I always like to hear kind of the origin story. Tell us a little about how did you first start coding, kind of fall in love with
0: programming? Yeah, yeah. It was at the end of those five years for the Submarine company and I saw Ruby and it was love at first sight. I always like looked into programming, but I never fully took it on because it always was a bit tedious to program. And I looked at every programming language under the sun. And then I saw Ruby and it read like poetry. It was beautiful. And I said, okay, well, this is the time. So I bought a book, taught myself how to program and, and went on from there, became a consultant and later uh, started a startup.
1: So now when you say it felt like poetry to you, it's a beautiful metaphor. Do you mean more like a haiku or a limerick, would you say?
0: I think more like a haiku because of the structure.
1: I appreciate your indulgence and kindness in giving that an honest answer. One other thing I couldn't help but notice is it sounded like what you said is, I assume we were going back in time. It sounded like you were like, well, first I was asked to build the computer that supplied the oxygen. And then a few years later, you discovered programming. Is that, I got that order right?
0: Yeah, that that is right. (laughs) I wasn't able to, to do complex programming. So that... I remember vividly, like in the attic of my parents, I had to make the first printed circuit board. So here I was downloading Eagle to do that. And there was a microcontroller that would drive an LCD that would tell you about the pressure in the submarine and uh, the oxygen percentage. And I never programmed one before. And I was so happy because I like spent hours and hours looking at the data sheets. And then I finally got the PCB and I booted everything up and I could actually program the AVR microchip. And I was just so, so happy because I was able to do that, but I wouldn't be able to debug it. I didn't have a scope or anything. So I would be totally lost if I would have messed up uh, a part of it. So tell us
1: a little bit about your road to GitLab. And actually, it it almost sounded, I heard a little bit of a parallel on how you were describing sort of the seeing a thing you thought was awesome and then talking about making a business out of it. Tell us a little bit about how you started GitLab.
0: Yeah, GitLab was the same thing. My co-founder, Dimitri, started the open source project in 2011. I only saw it in 2012 when it trended on Hacker News. I was like, wow, this is beautiful. It makes so much sense to me that software you collaborate with is also something you can contribute to. If any software should be open source, it should be that. And all the software I was using at the time was open source, except for the collaboration software. So... I thought it was a super logical idea. And I saw an opportunity to add to the GitLab community by starting a software as a service for it. So I did a show Hacker News. Does someone want to use like GitLab.com? And it didn't trend in the beginning and I was kind of sad. Went downstairs, started baking pancakes. But at a certain (laughs) point I saw my phone blow up and it was on the homepage. I asked my wife to take over, and uh, for the rest of the evening, I was upstairs uh, with my wife bringing me pancakes (laughs) while I was answering your questions.
5: (laughs) That's great. So probably most of our listeners know what GitLab is, but if they don't, just give us the quick overview of what it is and why they should use it.
0: Yeah, so GitLab is an open source integrated product for the entire DevOps lifecycle. So with GitLab, you can go all the way from planning what you do to releasing it into production and monitoring it. So most people assume that GitLab has like Git, it has version control, it has code review, but it also has a really good issue tracker. It installs a chat application if you want to use that. It has the best CI in the market. It has CD functionality, so you can release software with it. And it has integrated monitoring. So when you deploy an app with it, you can monitor it as well.
5: Cool. And is it SaaS? Is it something you install locally? How does that work?
0: Yeah, it can be either. So of the companies that self-host Git, two-thirds use GitLab. So that's where we're most popular, but we also still offer GitLab.com and that's quickly grown as well.
5: So where do you see this going, I guess, or what trends are you seeing in terms of how developers use software and do these things that you think are interesting sort of as you look into the future?
0: I think that developers want to make an application, make a useful application. And right now you still spend a lot of time on auxiliary tasks. Most large enterprises spend a lot of time integrating all the different developer tools they have. And we think that's a waste of time. We think that it's way better with GitLab because the 100,000 organizations that use GitLab, they kind of work together to integrate those tools all in one product. So you have like a single interface, a single UI, a single data store, to do all those tasks and they connect well together. And I think that's starting to resonate. People that use GitLab for the entire cycle are starting to see the advantages of that. All the way from discussing and planning an idea and the issue tracker and issue boards to doing code reviews, running CI with it, packaging it up and releasing it. And the trends we're seeing in companies, there are a few trends. I think they want to go cloud native. They want to adopt Kubernetes. They want to automate the whole software delivery life cycle and software development life cycle. And they want to improve their cycle time. They want to have a quicker iteration. So from having an idea to getting it out there, many organizations still take more than a quarter to do that. The way to get better at that is to automate more and to get visibility in that. It really helps if you're using one product where everything is already integrated to get visibility in that. And I think all those things, Together get a help to like improve customer experience, which is, which is the end goal companies realize that they have to become a software company. And if they don't use software to improve the customer experience, a startup will do it and displace them. So how do you think about that? I love
5: that sort of list of problems that companies face and trends, especially improved cycle time, just move faster and get stuff out faster. So you mentioned sort of having an integrated tool chain and things like that as foundational to that. If you're working with a company that you know, is just getting started with this, I guess, where do you tell them to start? What should they think about as far as just trying to increase cycle time and move faster?
0: So to have a quicker cycle time, there's a few ways in which GitLab can help. So first of all, we can give you visibility in the cycle time. So there's cycle analytics in GitLab, it comes in all the versions of GitLab and it comes out of the box. So you're going to see how long things took and how much time you spent in every step of the process. That's a really powerful thing. Then the other thing is, because GitLab's integrated, you've got these emergent benefits. For example, your CI system is aware of the container registry that also comes with GitLab. So there's no need to pass credentials around. The container registry knows who you are, what your permissions are, and can accept like the result of a build from the CI system. Now, if you're just getting started, I think people... For example, you should have a look at our auto DevOps feature. We just released that beta on the 22nd of September with GitLab 10. And what it does is if you push your code to GitLab, we will figure out how to not only build it, but also how to test it, how to assess the code quality of that, and how to deploy it. And it's a really powerful feature. So it does it all with the help of Kubernetes. So you can go cloud native and have all those things by just installing GitLab and pushing your code to it. And we're doubling down on that, making sure that we automate the software development lifecycle for you so you can focus on building your application. So that's
5: interesting. So how does that work? It sounds amazing, but really hard to do. I understand it. The idea is I just push my code there and you're going to analyze the code and tell me what next steps to take or are you actually starting to set up deployments and builds and things like that for me or how does that work?
0: Yeah, we actually do it for you and one of our values is boring solutions. So we didn't try to reinvent the wheel here. We tried to bring the best That's already out there.
1: Did you say boring solutions is one of your core values?
0: Yes, it is. (laughs) I love that. That's a great way to put it. We have really smart developers working at GitLab, but we really try to instill on them that our mission is everyone can contribute. And if they have some technology that they think the world of, and that's really interesting to them, we encourage them to play with it. At GitLab, we don't track your time. So there should be time in your day to play with it. But please don't bring it inside GitLab unless it's essential, because if we bring a wobbly part into our architecture, you prevent the next person from contributing to the project because now they have to understand that part that might fail, that might not be fleshed out, that might not have great documentation yet. So we say we want to use boring solutions everywhere we can. We want GitLab to be really exciting. But... For GitLab to be exciting, it has to be composed of many boring parts, because that way we can build a, a bigger tower. Now, let me try to answer the question, like, how do we build this auto DevOps? It sounds yeah. a bit too magical to be real. So, auto build uses Heroku Build Packs. And Heroku Build Packs are great. They run for many languages, and it allows us to build a container with the app that will run. AutoTest is based on Heroku CI. Again, language detection and then running the appropriate CI commands. Auto code quality is based on the engines that Code Climate open sourced. They've done a great job for many languages of bundling all the relevant static analysis tools and outputting those results. We also got auto review apps. So for every code push that you have, for every feature branch, for every merge request, you get a staging environment. And when it's merged, that staging environment is is deprecated. So it's great because now you can not only review your code and the result of your test and the result of your quality checks, but you can also play with the application as it is. You don't have to fight for like, I want to put my code on staging. No, I want to put my code on staging. No problem. Everyone gets a staging environment. And we can do that because of auto build and because of Kubernetes. Kubernetes makes it really easy to spin up these ephemeral environments. And the auto deploy uses the CI/CD capabilities that are already in GitLab. The last thing is auto monitoring. So we monitor the apps deploy, and we use Prometheus for that. Prometheus is a really promising cloud-native monitoring solution and a CNCF project, and we're big fans of it. And have a Prometheus team that uh, helps to integrate Prometheus with GitLab.
5: Really cool. I like it. So the idea is, you know, you get a lot of the magic not by having invented a lot of magical technologies, but by using sort of what's already out there. And a lot of this comes from sort of Kubernetes and moving to containerization, which gives you a lot of power when it comes to deploys
0: and builds and creating staging environments and things like that. Is that right? That's exactly right. We think that for many companies, the dev tool space is really challenging because there's so much open source there and it's hard to compete as a commercial company. And we try to make that weakness into our strength instead of fighting the open source solutions, we think what people need is the integration of all the open source solutions, because there's so much out there, but to set that all up for every project is a lot of work. And there's an explosion of projects. If you go to microservices, you're going to have many, many more projects. So it should be zero clicks to do all these things. And that's what we're shipping with GitLab. Cool.
5: So tell us about the open source aspect of GitLab and how that all fits in.
0: Yeah. GitLab started as an open source project. And uh, GitLab is an open core company. So we tried every business model under the sun. We had donations, we had paid development, we had paid support, we had consultancy. But in the end, it turned out that the only way to create a sustainable company around GitLab was to have a version that had proprietary features and go to a licensing model. So there's GitLab Community Edition, open source, MIT licensed, and there's GitLab Enterprise Edition. And both of them, we have open issue trackers, and we work out in the open with our users and our customers. And over 1,800 people have contributed to GitLab. So there's a huge community around it, and we want to keep it that way. So every significant part of GitLab is in the open source edition. And we have, for example, Merge Request Coaches that help people that contribute to GitLab help to get their contribution over the finish line.
1: One thing I'm always interested in is sort of how do your free users sort of relate to or interact with your ultimate paid users? Like in some models like this, right, what you see is it's almost like lead gen, right? Lots of people use it for free and then some of them graduate. While in others, it's almost more like marketing where lots of people use it for free and then other people, because of the awareness of the free product, buy it. I'm curious if you see one or the other or a different model. Like, How does this sort of free user base look and relate to your paid user base,
0: at least today? Yeah, so... The vast majority of people using GitLab are using the open-source version, and it really helps to like spread awareness around GitLab. What we want to prevent is treating the open-source version as some kind of a freemium version. So all the performance improvements, all the security improvements to the core of GitLab are available in the open-source version. And there's no artificial limits in there. People run it with over 20,000 users. However, we want to do a super good job that if you have like more than 100 or 500 people in your organization that the features that we develop for the proprietary edition, GitLab, enterprise edition, that those add a lot of value. So we want to convince you to save time by switching to those features and start paying us so we can keep contributing to GitLab. About two thirds of the work we do is on the community edition, including lots of upgrades, performance fixes, et cetera.
1: Cool. So it's, it's almost like I guess, I don't know if Trello is the right analog, but you've got a full service, sort of never expiring version. But the notion is most larger companies will have a need for add-on features that come with the paid versions.
0: Exactly right.
1: So what are you excited about these days? Either what do you want to point our listeners to as either causes you care about or trends? What's exciting to you outside of the day-to-day GitLab?
0: I think there's lots of interesting things happening. I think it's weird that there's only 20 million developers in the world. So I'd love to see more of those. But I think that it's very hard to become an effective developer in three months. So I think it needs a much longer time span.
1: Some people think it's hard to build a personal submarine when you have no experience with anything related to that, but <laughs> that doesn't hold
0: everyone back. You know, Sid, you just got to do it sometimes. It's true, but it took three years as well before we had a version <laughs> that I would still want to sell today. Remember,
1: so, it takes two years to make a submarine or a good developer. Remember that, kids.
0: So that's something really interesting. Another thing that interests me is, is chat becoming the new email. I see in my own day-to-day that I I'd like much more to hang around in Slack than I like to open my email. So as that happens and it becomes a core part of everyone's infrastructure, it feels like it should be interoperable. Right now you got with Slack the possibilities to have like shared channels between organizations, but for example, you can't run Slack yourself. And that's a showstopper for a lot of organizations. And I, I can't believe all those organizations should be left behind or such an important medium should have only one company. So I'm looking into Matrix and their Riot client. And I think that's really interesting work, although like Federation is a graveyard of people that tried before and didn't succeed. But I think it's a really interesting trend.
1: It feels like there's like a little bit of a conflict in that if you want a platform that allows people to contact anyone one-to-one, regardless of organizational sort of belonging, right, which is how email works, that lends itself really well toward open standards, right, like the email protocols. The challenge with trying to build that into things like, obviously, like Slack is it's, I think that it's not in their interest necessarily it's like the iMessage problem, right? It's like you can go two ways, but like companies have a real interest in creating a system where you need that system and you want to get everyone onto it. But it can't really replace how people use email today until you can reach everybody whether or not they buy one company's thing.
5: Yeah, that's a tough thing where if email were invented today, it would be invented by one company as a proprietary system that you could not email anybody outside of their closed garden, right? So there's sort of this weird thing where it's, Nobody really wants to or is trying to or is succeeding at launching new, you know, new protocols, new open things like that.
0: I think there's another effect going on. So I think you hit on two effects like the obvious one, monetization and the network effect Mm -hmm. of needing a certain size. I also think that using a federated service is a worse user experience by definition. (laughs) If I use Gmail, Gmail can use machine learning across many, many people to have a very effective spam filter. If I set up my own email service, it's not going to have that data. It's not going to have as advanced protocols to prevent things like spam or cyber attacks and many other things. So I think that's something we should recognize. And I think the dream of like everyone running their own chat server or every organization, I think that's not going to happen. I think there's going to be just for email, there's going to be a Gmail and a Hotmail that people use. And we got to recognize that. So. It's not that there's going to be 100,000 equally sized chat servers out there. There's going to be a few really big ones, but everyone at least has the possibility to run their own. And that's something I want to explore because I've seen some federated projects that almost seem hostile to one instance becoming too large. And maybe that's something we can improve.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So you see it almost more like someone embraces a system where it is a publicly accessible open standard. So any client can talk to any other client, but a company is invested enough because they feel like either they've got first mover advantage or size or, or just better AI like Google, right? Where they feel like they can still become the dominant service provider effectively across this open standard for the client.
0: Exactly. Oh, that's interesting.
1: Well, is there anything else you want to plug or share with our listeners?
0: I would encourage them to check out GitLab and check out other devils, but also check out our handbook. We're trying to run an organization in which all the processes and how we work are out in the open. And we started that because when we started making a proprietary edition, lots of people in the community around GitLab were concerned that it would mean that the open source version would stall and would not get appropriate attention. But it's been a really big help for us also because people that are thinking of joining our organization are able to check how we work and how our values are represented in our processes. And I think it's interesting, and I think it's the most detailed public handbook. And I hope that people either see it and decide to join or decide not to join, but also maybe I've heard of companies reusing parts of it when they're starting their own startups.
1: That's awesome. That must feel really good is kind of seeing that not only of have- Sort of the capturing what you've done and the philosophies, but seeing others build on that's got to be, I don't know, just fits perfectly into sort of the open source ethos you were built on. That's really great. Well, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate your taking the time to come out, share the story, and talk a little bit about all the exciting things happening at GitLab. So thank you, Sid.
0: Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for doing this podcast. It's awesome.
1: Thanks. Aww. No one's ever said that about our podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> God, I dreamed for so many years of one of my parents saying that about anything I did. We'll keep that clip and we'll just replay it every, yeah. every episode.
0: If we get that out of the soundboard, it's great. Like I'm a runner and like listening to these podcasts and uh, I don't know. Shout out to Adam from the Change Log, also making a great one. Like it makes you feel connected to other developers, and we're a remote only company, and it's fun to like have these kind of resources and. It's not the most profitable thing to make, and it's great that you make it, and and you you keep it up here many, many years. Uh, That's awesome.
2: Don't tell anybody it's not profitable. (laughs) (laughs) Wait,
1: sorry, we're not getting paid for this? Because I I just thought there was some kind of processing problem. Uh, Thanks to our generous sponsors.
2: (laughs) Your check's in the mail, Jay.
1: Thanks again to Amazon, who's spying on you right now, which I think should bring us to...
4: Twitter announced this week that it is doubling its character count for tweets from 140 characters to 280 characters for some of its users. Some argue that Twitter should focus less on the length of the tweets and more on curtailing abuse. This paragraph is 280 characters. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, including that last note or? Is-
2: yep, including mm-hmm. the last note.
1: Nice. Is that true? It is. Wow. I don't know what to make of any of this. So I think there's always an interesting phenomenon, which is that we see this on the site too, and neither valid or invalid, it's just natural, which is whenever somebody does something on a website that gets attention, there will be a large number of people who basically say, what you always should be doing is this other thing I care more about. And not to say it's wrong on Twitter. I actually think Twitter's abuse problem is a deep and important issue they have, but I am struck and have a little bit of tiny sympathy of like, you're often doing many things at once, confronting one problem while you work on something else. And we do something, I see that like, You'll do something. And whether it's right or wrong is a separate question. But the response is like, damn it, I've told you a thousand times I want X. But going on this specifically, separate from what else they should be doing instead, I have a question. Does anyone know what they're trying to achieve?
3: Maybe they're trying to eliminate the threads that are like one of 800.
1: So I thought of that. Now it'll be one of 400. (laughs) Almost none of them are one of two. Like if that were their goal, I'd say they've eliminated such a tiny slice of that problem.
3: I mean, the blog was quite interesting, the one where they talked about how languages like Japanese or Korean are inherently, like, they use a lot fewer characters and languages, like, romance languages are at a disadvantage, right? Because we use way more characters to say the same thing.
5: But nothing about this addresses that, right? No, it does, because they're
3: only increasing... Oh, they're, they're, all, they're doing increasing it per, Japanese per language. Korean.
5: Yeah. So if I that happen true? to type in Japanese, then I don't get this? Or they're only going to give it to people who type mostly in English? Is that the idea? But
1: even there, there's something weird. In our, like It almost feels like they just, I don't know. There's a, I'm not that cynical usually, but that felt <laughs> like a forced explanation to sign they were doing. Like, in other words, the notion that we've concluded that Japanese and Chinese and character-based languages, those were the ones that were correct at the arbitrary 140 characters. And so to equalize, we have to adjust the others. Yeah. So the equivalent I mean, sentiment, like it just feel. Everyone recognizes the 140 was arbitrary, right?
2: Does this mean that Germany is getting like 420 characters?
1: <laughs> they have one very long word that means that exact question, actually.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> it's arbitrary. I don't know. I guess I have
5: mixed feelings on it. Why not experiment with it? I guess is one feeling like, sure, try it. Why not? See what happens. One thing they could be trying to... uh, its a good question. What are they trying to accomplish here? I don't think they're saying it, but...
4: Well, they said that the goal was to eliminate what it viewed as constraints that kept people from tweeting more frequently.
5: Right. They're trying to increase engagement, right? Obviously, pretty much everything that a company like Twitter does is to try to get more people doing more things. And so I could see how a new user's first experience is they try to type something out and it's extremely off-putting to suddenly be told, nope, you're out of characters, make it shorter. So I guess... Sure. From that angle, there's obviously more thoughts that can be fit in 280 characters, whatever.
3: If that is the reason, it seems pretty strange to change the entire user experience for what have to be like a relative trickle of users coming in. Like Twitter's been around for a long time. If you would have signed up for Twitter, you probably did it already.
1: Yeah, like they're waiting for babies to be born at this point, right? I'm one of those people who's not good at brevity. It's like I spend every every really? tweet. I, yeah, right. yeah, I know. It's shocking. <laughs> shocking. But every, every tweet I spend ends the same way where I'm like, do I have any place I spelled out a number that I can turn into a number? Are there punctuations I could get rid of?
3: I do the same thing, but I really, I like that because it's so satisfying when you finish a tweet and you're like, that was exactly 140 characters. I am awesome.
5: Yeah. There's also times where you can actually feel it making it better, right? Because you're yeah, like, ah, oh, right. I'm taking out words that didn't actually need to be there.
1: like Should we give yeah.
3: Jay a 140 character limit for his emails, maybe?
1: That'd be good. That'd be no. good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like in Twitter, I have to take out like dream sequences. I have to remove <laughs> dance numbers. It's very helpful in keeping to the point. But there's a little bit of like, this is what made Twitter work on some level. I'm not saying 140 was right and 280 was wrong, but. At some point, if they kept expanding it, what you essentially have is it's like, you know, it's like an RSS feed of of short
5: articles. Remember when they called it microblogging? Oh, yeah. That was the whole, that was what it was described as. And I remember thinking, what the heck does that even mean? And who is asking for a shorter box to type their blog posts into? Uh, What?
3: But it works. No, it does. It's weird, but
5: gosh, maybe it's just the eek factor. But my first reaction to the people posting 280 character things is a little bit like, oh, "This it's too long. Couldn't you have made it shorter? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. On the other hand, well, I'm sure they're also looking at Facebook, which does not have these limits, right? Uh, does Facebook have any limits?
1: No, no, uh, I think they do. I take it back. I think there is a text limit, but it's long. It's, it's like a page. What's
5: interesting is that they decided to go to 480, did or no, wait, 280. 280. 280 they, do- they, they doubled didn't it. didn't decide yes. to go to unlimited or massively long. It's kind of a weird... It was an arbitrary number, so we picked a two times that arbitrary number as the new number. Like, is there any justification for why they think that's the right number? Did they do some sort of analysis on, you know, on languages that says this is a better number that people... I, I don't... I,
1: Sometimes we assign too much intent and deliberateness, but my instinct is to assume looking backward in time. Let's think what they've done recently. They started doing other things that were in this direction, right? So they made, I think recently, both photos stopped counting as some number of characters, and I believe at least one name. You can do one at name that doesn't count. Some of
2: the websites have been shortened as well if you put links in it.
1: I thought the link was still... Anyway, they, some of those things that used to have like a fixed cost that took out your characters, they cut that, right? So those were free. I have to assume they were looking at that and that overall either increased engagement or kept engagement stable, but up the multimedia nature of it. Like you got more of that stuff and that they were learning from that, that it seems like they can drive more engagement that way. Like if that, if that wasn't doing that, it'd be shocking that they push farther.
2: Yeah. Did anyone here get the test? No. The podcast did
5: podcast did for the podcast no got it reason. for some
2: reason yeah i was tweeting from the podcast yesterday and i noticed that the ui was different and i was like what is So this? you immediately oh. abused
5: your new power by tweeting out an obnoxiously long tweet which i, I really I honestly was close to like blocking the account because of it <laughs> it made me like legitimately angry having to scroll past it <laughs> when it was you and it was you and everybody else but it was a real feeling yeah there were a ton of people that did the same thing it was it was you and everybody else and it was like uh can i is there a way to block all the people who are posting (laughs) stupidly long
1: tweets just because they can't
2: because you didn't have the 280
1: no not really (laughs) (laughs) there was there was a sad moment there for david i was that was awkward that was a
5: I barely even tweet anymore. I just retweet things that other people say. Because every time there's like an issue or something going on, I'm like, ah, do I really have anything to add here? I'm just going to find somebody who's already saying something and amplify them.
1: But now you can tweet half as often and convey just as many characters. (laughs) Do you see that value in that?
2: I think I just wanted to talk about this today so that everybody could know that we have a podcast Twitter account. Oh, do and we? So we do. Does it have
1: a handle? People can follow? It them? does.
2: It does. It's at Stack Podcast, and we are three away from 1,000 followers.
1: Three so away everyone, from 1,000 yeah, followers.
2: Yeah, we're 997.
5: Uh, that's oh, what I was why ask. did you
1: give it away? I wasn't. Sorry. Oh.
2: Oh
3: man. Oh, I was just number 1000. Oh, it was me. Oh, I'm Yay! sorry. Should I not have done that? No, should that's I have awesome. let someone else
2: have it? <laughs> Hooray. But everybody should follow the
1: Congratulations, podcast. Congratulations, Christina. Your prize is you get to hear inane things on Twitter from us that are <laughs> twice as long as they used to be. Great. <laughs> Well, you've gone and wasted another hour of your life listening to the Stack Overflow podcast number 117, recorded Thursday, September 28th, 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York City, home to Staten Island. If you've ever wondered what accent you'd get if Brooklyn and New Jersey had a baby together, look no farther than (laughs) Staten Island. This podcast has been brought to you by Oracle. Go to developer.oracle.com or oracle.com slash developers, both work, to learn about all the ways Oracle supports developers like you. And amazon.com, being the world's most customer-centric company, means we never stop thinking about what you need, or watching what you're doing, or trying to read your thoughts. Not ever. Our (laughs) audio engineer is Carlos Hernandez. Audio editor is David Greenley. Technology concierge is Michael Rosa. Producer is Jess Pardue. Executive producer is Caitlin Pike. For David Fullerton, Jess Pardue, Ilani Itsaki, and the longest dating but still not engaged couple at a wedding who always get into a fight about something totally unrelated to marriage. I'm your host, Jay Hanlon, and your homework this week is to buy a book that will help you understand how your brain works. My favorite is Dan Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow or Anything by Dan Ariely. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye next down the
4: and to play
3: out anytime that i just i sound stupid
1: we don't want to lose the whole segment oh you know Jay, i was gonna apologize for ragging on you for
3: being so long-winded but now i won't
5: never apologize for (laughs) ragging on jay listen easy (laughs) targets i'm gonna give you two one you already found which is the long-windedness the other one very obvious when you meet him in person rag on him for being short it's an automatic win
1: are we hosting exec sponsored bullying classes at work now? Is that what I just want to make sure I understand what's happening. That's accurate. Yep. Yep. Okay.
3: Well, I have like firsthand knowledge of the long windedness because I remember once Jay and I were working on a doc.
5: <laughs> I love the story already.
3: You were there writing stuff in a doc and I was just following you right behind it. Just like cutting it all down by like <laughs> 75% as you're writing.
1: It. Yep. It was one of the most magical like writing experiences I've ever had. That used to be my job.
5: There was a time when Jay would write the blog posts and then I would have to be the one cutting them yeah. down. But
1: now I don't have to do that anymore. It's great. My mantra was David takes my mediocre ideas and makes them shorter. <laughs> <laughs>